Okay, before we return to the World Health Organization briefings and the information they provide, we talked before the break uh, about the COVID virus kind of unmasking, if you will, uh, the apparent shortcomings that are caused by our economic social system and the gross wealth inequality therein that shapes those conditions. So I wanted to turn to that subject. Let me just start by saying, let's be clear that the way the Trump administration has handled the COVID virus is has been poor. It's been slow and incomplete and definitely has not put all of our resources out there in any form of efficient way for the benefit of of the public. In the process, it has actually created pathways, I'm sure, for these larger companies to uh, have a financial stake in the outcome of this deal as opposed to all hands on deck, let's get this job done type of thing. As a consequence, we've been behind the curve. But I also think it's important to point out that the economic problems this country faces is not from the mishandling of the COVID virus. It has to do with well before that, and we've covered it on a number of shows. And those, statistically speaking, the headlines at the beginning of 2019 uh, actually touted uh, America's booming economy. But the government shutdown back then, if you remember, when Trump and the Congress were going at it, has illustrated how disconnected that narrative was from the day-to-day financial lives of most Americans. And in in a piece by the Prosperity Now scorecard back in January of 2019 called Vulnerability in the Face of Economic Uncertainty, some of its key findings I wanted to share with you, uh, economists look to the labor market and official unemployment numbers to judge the strength of the economy. Uh, The data from the 2019 Prosperity Now scorecard shows that there are millions of families either struggling to make ends meet or just one emergency away from a financial disaster. Again, this is way before the COVID virus, right? And, and certainly that's a financial disaster par excellence. Anyhow, the 2019 scorecard finds that 40% of American households lack a basic level of savings. Uh, these liquid asset poor families or households don't have enough savings to make ends meet at the poverty level for three months if their income was interrupted, which of course it has been. Housing costs are rising faster than incomes, keeping the home ownership rate from rebounding significantly. This has an especially large effect on households of color who bore the brunt of the recent foreclosure crisis and have faced discrimination in both public policy and financial markets. As a result, they continue to have significantly lower home ownership rates than the white households. This institutional racism and baked-in discrimination in our economy has created a racial wealth gap that far outpaces income inequality. At the median, black households earn 61 cents and Latinos households 76 cents for every dollar earned by white households. Wealth disparities are even more stark. Black households own only six cents and Latino households own 13 cents for every dollar of white wealth. And then lastly, 40% of households lack a basic personal safety net to get them through a financial shock. These households are liquid asset poor, which means they don't have enough in liquid savings, such as cash or assets that are easily converted to cash to replace income at the poverty level for the three months we mentioned before. This has increased from 36.8% as reported in last year's scorecard, which would be 2018, the situation could be, in fact, worse as the levels of savings below which a family is considered, quote-unquote, liquid asset poor 
is $6,275 for a family of four in 2018. That is an extremely conservative measure of what is needed to get by. So just as when we talk about the poverty rate, that's also a very conservative figure. What is it, some 20, 24,000 for a family of four? Really? The income of 24,000 in this day and age is supposed to pay for a family of, I would argue it'd be difficult for, for, uh, for, for many people that are listening to this show uh, if it was just a one-person family. So, you know, we start with these types of, if you will, kind of false definitions that, that poverty is defined as being below 24,000, when really more complete studies have indicated a family of four needed at least twice that. And, and so anyhow, the, the, lastly, I just wanted to turn to a couple of more of these before pre-COVID virus issues. We, we started the show off with a critique of the concentration of wealth. And it's hard to really capture that in statistics, but time to care, unpaid and underpaid work in the global inequality crisis is a paper that the Oxfam folks put out in, in, in January of, tw of this year, 2020. And they documented that the world's richest 1% now have more than twice as much wealth as 6.9 billion people. In 2019, the world's billionaires, there was only 2,153, okay, it's 2,153 billionaires. They had more wealth than 4.6 billion people. If you save $10,000 a day since the building of the pyramids in Egypt, you would have one-fifth the average fortune of the five richest billionaires. Imagine that. Imagine even saving $10,000 in a day. But they're saying you'd have to do that since the time of the pyramids in Egypt, and you'd still only have one-fifth of the average fortune of the five richest billionaires. It's crazy. People just don't need this type of money, and they, and they get it to a large extent from keeping it isolated from proper taxation. Anyhow, the monetary value of a woman's unpaid care work globally for a woman age 15 and over is at least $10.8 trillion annually. Each year, women are getting robbed of $10.8 trillion annually in the form of unpaid care work that they do globally. These are women of age 15 and over. This is what uh, neo-colonialism uh, is. You know, we are misled to think that because we grant countries independence from colonialism, huge material corporate interests largely controlled by these major Western corporations continue to make great profits as long as the right people are in power. And that's what our foreign policy does make sure the right people are empowered to ensure conditions that provide low labor costs to these investment corporations. In other words, they make sure these types of living and working conditions occur in which, as we just mentioned, this unpaid $10.8 trillion annually is literally not paid to women age 15 and over, this unpaid work that we're talking about. So where does that $10.8 trillion go? You know, figure that out. Anyhow, our intelligence community work, works hand in glove with kind of trying to ensure that these least progressive governments are allowed to ascend to power to provide these low production costs and high profit margin environments for these investment corporations. I mean, not for the majority, but for the 1% are these interests. So our dominant media, knowingly or not, they work obediently to leave out important information and or too often just repeat uncritically 
the physicians that our intelligence community communicate to our major public news sources regarding unfolding events around the world that this show has covered. Meanwhile, too often, the retired military and political leaders move from their former jobs into positions as expert consultants that litter the news shows, misrepresented as nonpartisans in what is appropriately described as a kind of a revolving door uh, syndrome. Anyhow, getting back to this really important concept that whether Republicans or Democrats, the working class is not being respected, honored in any form or fashion. You know, politicians, including our most progressive ones, are proof of that. And in a May 4th, 2016 opinion piece in New York Post, President Obama, as president, was act, you know, he accurately stated that over the last six years, America's businesses have created more than 14 million new jobs. The image making was that we have more jobs, and, and that's good, right? He also has taken credit for less poverty. But the reality is many jobs created provided unsustainable income, and while poverty went down, actually low-income families, defined as all families below twice the poverty rate, soared, while the greatest wealth transfer in history went from the bottom to the top. In other words, under Obama's administration, wealth inequality increased. It did not decrease, okay? And then lastly, from this articles, a number of them, but almost all of the U.S. jobs created since 2005 are temporary by Dan Kopf. This is a 2016 article during Obama's administration. Uh, it was a study conducted by Harvard economist Lawrence Katz and Princeton economist Alan Kruger. Also, other sources for the information I'm about to share from you come from the State of Working America by the Economic Policy Institute. But false image making, unemployment falls to 4.6% in November of 2016. But what's not told is that the nature of, the, of that employment has changed. A major study examining 2005 to 2015 under the Obama administration revealed spread of part-time and contract work. Uh, it found that 94% of the 10 million jobs created during the Obama administration were temporary, contract, or part-time positions, unsteady, temporary work. These are the service jobs. These are all of these people that have been laid off. We now have 30 million people on uh, applying for unemployment. They have no insurance. They lost their jobs. If their jobs provided them insurance, they don't have insurance. If they have insurance, we've mentioned on a previous show two weeks ago how our insurance is so costly, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, unaffordable for most elements of that insurance that people will need. Anyhow, the proportion of workers engaged in these part-time jobs, these alternative jobs, if you were, rose from 10.7% of the population to 15.8% during this period. At the same time, the study found that under Obama, there were 1 million fewer workers engaged in full-time jobs than at the start of the recession. And despite being employed, 28% of U.S. workers took home poverty-level wages in 2011. Anyhow, in February of 2016, researchers at the Brookings Institute analyzed life expectancies for men and for top 10% of earners, income earners, and those who are among the bottom 10% to see if these, if, the, if these wealth and income differences made any difference in lifespan. And for men born in 1950, 
the bottom 10% of this, on this wealth ladder, their life expectancy was 14 years shorter than those among the rich. And so, you know, basically, once again, we call ourselves a democracy, but when lives are cut by 14, and in some cities, they're cut by a lot more years than 14 based on this, this uh, income and uh, wealth inequality indices that we've, been, uh, that we've been sharing. And this is what the World Health Organization is dealing with, a world in which so many live on so little. And then the United States is uh, threatening to withdraw its funding. So we'll be moving into some other segments from the World Health Organization briefings that occurred. And this is going to take us back to the April 27th. Some clips just on more focused on the virus itself, learning a little bit more about that. In addition to the director general's voice, you'll also hear some clinical information that I thought was interesting from Dr. Maria Van Kirkov. She's the head of the emerging disease section of World Health Organization, has been present in all the media briefings. So be some breaks. The, this is all from the April 27th briefing, but there are clips that uh, overlap a little bit. I think you'll be able to recognize the transitions. One additional point I wanted to add to what um, Mike and DGs have said is is about this question around the second wave. And as, as the director general has just said, it's in our hands. Um, but we are learning about this virus every day. Um, and while one of the important things that we are starting to learn now is the extent of infection in countries. And some of this comes from the surveillance, which is detected through the PCR testing. But there's an, an additional tool that we have, which is um, gathering information about the extent of infection through seroepidemiology, which is measuring the extent of infection in people who may have been missed through surveillance. And we detect the antibody levels in those individuals. And while I don't have specific details about Azerbaijan, we are learning from a number of countries that early results suggest um, that a large proportion of the population remains susceptible. And that's an important feature because that means that there still are people that this virus can infect. And so in addition to how we intensify the measures to increase you know, uh, the, the so-called lockdown measures, as well as lifting those in a controlled and studied way, it's really important that we remain vigilant, that we remain vigilant to identify cases very, very quickly through all of the systems that we have been describing. And that early action, again, even if countries have been successful in suppressing transmission, it's important that they remain vigilant to be able to de detect those quickly and stamp it out uh, right away. So these seroepidemiology studies have been very important, um, even though they're early, even though there are some limitations with these studies that have come out so far, it's important that we understand at this point in time, four months into a global pandemic, a large proportion of the population still remains susceptible. Thank you very much. Um, so this was answered to Cameron Kasimov from Azerbaijan, and now we will go to South Africa. It's Dennis from uh, Network 24 TV. Um, my question is for uh, the director general of the WHO. So it's a, I would like to know um, what is the stance from the WHO on South Africa and how South Africa is handling this pandemic. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I come again, I'm sure. The DG will want to supplement. I, I we, actually, as it happens, we were discussing this uh, earlier today. I think, uh, I think uh, there are a number of things. I think one is South Africa has, I think, used its uh, initial lockdown very well and put in place a four-point plan for preparedness and response. I think the 
the deployment of 39 mobile laboratories all over South Africa has been a, a huge innovation. I think the training of up to 30,000 community health workers for doing uh, contact tracing, testing and, and other things. Um, I be also believe that South Africa is tracking closely the HIV positive population and actively looking to see if there's any differential impact on that population, which I think is very prudent and, and shows a very caring approach for a vulnerable population. Um, obviously, uh, like in, in any country, uh, South Africa is a large country, extremely diverse, and, and the disease has not yet reached the, the whole population, and there are large numbers of vulnerable people in South Africa. So South Africa, like every country, is not out of the woods, but I, uh, South Africa was the first country in Africa to develop its own capacity to do laboratory testing, um, and uh, also has given that gift to the rest of Africa through uh, the training it has run with the Senegalese uh, Institute Pasteur Lab and others. So South Africa is a net contributor to capacity building in, in Africa. Uh, and also uh, because South Africa is entering or will enter into the influenza season fairly soon with countries like Argentina, like Chile, like Australia, it's really important that we support countries in the Southern Hemisphere who do experience uh, uh, yearly influenza cycles to ensure that they have the capacity to both manage and monitor both influenza and COVID-19 at the same time. Because I believe the lessons that are learned uh, in the experience those countries will have with potentially both diseases circulating, circulating at the same time will not only benefit their countries, but will greatly benefit countries in the Northern Hemisphere who may face the same situation in six months' time. So we have a, a huge benefit to gain from investing in the capacities, the scientific, epidemiologic and other capacities in South Africa, which are um, have been demonstrated already to be very strong. Uh, but I'm sure, as I said, that every country faces its own challenges. Uh, and I'm sure the lockdowns have not been easy for communities, particularly those in poor and vulnerable settings. But uh, uh, I, I hope I can say this without fear of contradiction. I think South Africa has really shown the way in Africa, and it's showing the way globally for how a country that has, uh, facing its own economic and, and, and other difficulties, has clearly demonstrated a very strong public health-led response to this pandemic. Uh, but still, nobody is out of the woods yet. Thank you very much. Uh, next question is uh, from Ankit Kumar from India Today. Ankit, uh, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Good evening. Uh, my name is Ankit Kumar. Uh, I represent India Today. My question is, in India, scientists from two institutions have claimed that high fatality rate in some of the cities could be possibly linked due to a L-type strain of the virus. Is there any evidence to show that uh, the fatality rate is higher in this particular L-type strain? If you could please talk about it. Thank you. Thank you for that question. So um, there are a number, uh, we, we're working with a, a global network of virologists and laboratorians across the world that are looking specifically at the sequences of the viruses that are circulating around the world. Um, and there are more than 10,000 full genome sequences available. Um, I don't even have the last count, but at least 10,000 full genome sequences that are available. And we're looking at the changes in the virus to see if any of those changes mean that the virus has mutated um, and that it changes in terms of its transmissibility or its ability to infect people or its ability to cause severe disease. And so far, um, this virus is relatively stable. There 
there are changes in the virus which are expected in RNA viruses, but these changes are within the expected range, and there aren't any differences in the viruses that have been found in different countries um, that suggest that it behaves differently in terms of its ability to transmit or its ability to cause severe disease in people. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Van Kerkhove. Uh, now we go to uh, Tania Valbuena. Uh, N plus one, that's online science magazine for Latin America and Spain. Tanya, can you hear us? Thank you very much, Tanya. The question is about immunity passports. So I'll start and, and perhaps Mike or Gigi would like to supplement. So um, yes, there are some countries that are considering the use of a passport or a certificate, um, which would indicate that somebody has been infected, to, uh, infected with COVID-19 and has developed some immunity. And so what we're doing is we're working with, with labs to understand how these serologic assays are being used in individuals and what an antibody response, which is what those test measures, means in terms of immunity and in terms of protection. Um, and so uh, there are a number of studies that are underway to look at the tests themselves to see if they actually do what they say they do. Um, and what we're finding is that individuals who develop an antibody response um, is developed about a week or two after infection. And we're trying to better understand what that antibody response means. Um, right now, there are no studies that evaluate the antibody response as it relates to immunity. So we can't say that an antibody response means that someone is immune. Having said that, there are a number of studies underway, and we, and we expect this, this is a very active area of research. Um, we expect people that are infected with COVID-19 to develop a response that has some level of protection. What we don't know right now is how strong that protection is, and if that's seen in everybody that is infected, and for how long that lasts. And so right now, at the present time, four months into this pandemic, we're not able to say that an antibody response means someone is immune. Saying uh, that there's no evidence in this area doesn't mean that there's no immunity. It just means that these studies haven't been done yet. And so we're working with, with scientists all over the world, with our partners, to really understand what this means for people who have mild disease, for people who have severe disease, and what the antibody response means in terms of protection. Um, yes, and if I could just add to that, I mean, the, the, the serologic tests are the tests that test the, the blood test that test whether you've had the infection to a greater or lesser extent of accuracy can say you've had this infection. It's a very different question to say, are you protected? Is not based on one factor alone, of course. It, it cannot only be based on the numbers of cases and deaths reported. And I, I think it's worth saying that at this point in the pandemic, I think all countries are struggling right now to identify cases and all countries are, are struggling to report the deaths associated with COVID-19. And that is to be expected um, because it is very challenging to identify all of them as you are dealing with a pandemic, as you are dealing with intense transmission in many countries. But in addition to the, the transmission that may be happening in the country and the numbers of cases and, and deaths that are identified, there's a number of other factors that must be considered, which include the ability of the country to identify the virus. So whether it's a workforce of contact tracers to help find the virus, um, whether it's the workforce um, in your healthcare facilities and your frontline facilities to be able to deal with patients, um, looking at the numbers of beds available in hospitals for mild patients, for severe patients. What does that look like in terms of your ability to handle um, an increased burden if case numbers um, increase again? Um, making sure that if workplaces are open, if schools are opened, that those places are ready, ready to receive students again, ready to receive people back at work, where you can still manage physical distancing, where you can still manage um, the ability to, to keep people physically separated but let them work. 
And it, it requires having the entire population engaged and informed to understand that this needs to happen in a slow, measured, and controlled way. Um, and as the DG has said and has said repeatedly, this, this will take some time, um, and, and this is nowhere near over. And we need everyone to be mentally prepared um, that we, we have some more to go. And that may require being more patient and, and, and having to deal with some of these measures um, that are, are difficult to deal with. So it isn't just case numbers and deaths alone. It's a combination of factors that need to be looked at so that a risk-based approach is taken to lift some of these measures. Yeah, thank you. So I'd like to say a few words. On countries following WHO's advice, we can only give advice to countries. But one thing should be clear. We don't have any mandate to force countries to implement what we advise them. It's up to the countries to take our advice or reject it. But we give our advice based on the best science and evidence. Maybe one example is, as you remember, on January 30, we declared the highest level of emergency, global emergency on COVID-19. Based on the international health regulation, WHO can declare the highest level of global emergency, and we did that on January 30th. During that time, as you may remember, there were only 82 cases outside China. No cases in Latin America, actually. No cases in Africa. Only 10 cases in Europe. No deaths in the rest of the world. Nothing. So the world should have listened to WHO then carefully because global emergency, the highest level of emergency, was triggered on January 30 when we only had 82 cases and no deaths in the rest of the world. And every country could have triggered all its public health measures possible. I think that suffices the importance of listening to WHO's advice. And then we advise the whole world to implement a comprehensive public health approach. And we said, find, test, isolate, and do contact tracing, and so on. You can check for yourselves. Countries who, who followed that are in a better position than others. This is fact. So again, I will come back. I can give you many examples, but I don't want to take much of this time because there are many people who want to ask additional questions. But one thing I would like to repeat is, I assure you that WHO gives the best advice we can based on science and evidence. It's up to the countries to reject or accept. But from our experience so far, what we have seen is some countries accept, some may not. At the end of the day, each country takes its own responsibility. And I repeat, we don't have any power or force to enforce our advice except the willingness of the countries to accept or reject. So I hope that's, that's very clear for any country. But one thing I would like to assure you is we will continue to give advice based on science and evidence. And then it will be up to the countries whether to take it or not. Thank you. Okay, we'll see you next week.